0: Hello, and welcome to the Her Head and Films Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Caitlin. In this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. Today's episode is going to be about two documentaries that I recently watched. The first is called Birth of a Family, and it's directed by Tasha Hubbard from 2016. And the second documentary is called Manic, and it's by Kalina Bertin, and it's, from, it's also from 2016. I'm gonna talk about various things in these two documentaries and why they moved me and why I think they're so amazing. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, my name is Caitlin and I consider myself a writer. I describe myself as a dreamer. I'm someone who loves literature, art, poetry. I'm very curious about the world. I'm a very sensitive person, um, and that can be difficult at times, and I'm someone who I think I feel things very deeply at times, you know. I created this podcast as a way to share my thoughts and feelings. I needed an outlet, I needed a way to communicate. My passion for cinema, which has recently developed into an obsession and I discovered art house cinema really for the first time around 2011 that's when I fell deeply deeply in love with it and it has since just grown and taken over my life in some ways the title Her Head in Films comes from an email that I sent a friend a few years ago and in that email I said that my head isn't in the clouds my head is in films I was watching a lot of movies at the time, I was really obsessed and so that phrase perfectly encapsulates my relationship to cinema, how I'm always thinking about it, always engaging with it and it becomes part of me. And I love talking about films, I live in a rural area in the south, It's not a cinephile culture where I live, I have nobody to talk to about movies and so I just needed a way to speak you know what I mean and um, this podcast does have a patreon where you can help to financially sustain the podcast I have a lot of dreams and a lot of things uh, more that I would like to do with the podcast and if you would like to support it in that way I would love to have you as a patron you do get access to a lot of different rewards and extras including like a mini podcast that I do that's a little bit shorter so I have a lot to offer you there one um reward that you can get is to get a shout out in each episode. So I would like to give a shout out to Jesse, Lindsay, Olivia, Carolyn, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons of this little podcast <laughs> that um that I do. And I mean I'm literally sitting here in my bedroom with a microphone hooked up to my Chromebook my Google Chromebook that I have and I'm just talking. And once again, I'm doing an episode on Saturday because I have no life. Other people go out and maybe they do things. I'm just in my room talking about films. It's the middle of the night again. I tend to there's something about the nighttime for me that always is very it provokes something from me. It it's this time when i think that a lot of things want to come out a lot of emotions and feelings and i get i get very contemplative and i think about my life and i think about things and i just sometimes i need to speak i need to talk and you know it's the middle of the night and i don't have anybody who i can wake up at 1 a.m. and just talk 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 about everything or talk about this film that i watched and so I thought I'd do a podcast episode. I wasn't planning on doing this episode wasn't planning about planning on talking about these films um but I felt compelled to um after watching them so But before I get to the films, I just want to talk generally about some things and um you know some of you who listen to the podcast regularly, you know that I do that I mean this is a really casual podcast. It's really raw. It's really personal. I want it to be conversational. I want it to be accessible. That's what I want out of it. You know, I really want it to be personal. And I want you to feel like I'm sitting across from you at a cafe and we're having a conversation or I'm just talking about my favorite films. And I was thinking recently about um, about why I watch films. Right now, I'm going through what I would call a cinemania, where I'm I'm literally in like a, almost a manic state in watching films. It's the weekend. The weekend's always a really great time to, you know, really binge on films. I mean, there's this huge thing in our culture of binge-watching television, right? Everybody binge-watches television shows. I don't think I've binge-watched a television show in ages. I just tv doesn't grab me the way that cinema does i love tv i watch tv shows i eventually want to do some episodes about some of my favorite tv shows but there's just something for me about cinema that gets me thinking that gets me talking that that just that i connect to in a deeper more serious way i think So what I tend to do is I binge cinema. I binge films. I will watch and watch and watch films. You know, sometimes two or three in one day. And um, I've been watching some more short films recently. And I tweeted about this. And this is just a suggestion that I have for some of you who maybe you have insomnia or maybe you just wake up randomly in the middle of the night. I've been dealing with some physical pain, um, with some tooth pain and some headaches for a, for a few weeks now that have been difficult and recently I've just found myself waking up sometimes at 3, 4, 5 in the morning. And something that I suggest to you if you have that problem too at times is to maybe watch a short film, you know, and so I've kind of gotten more into short films recently. I mean, I don't watch a ton of short films but I have gotten more into them. I've I guess I've kind of used them as a coping mechanism and but that was just a suggestion that I had on Twitter and I wanted to share here that you know if you're in up in the middle of the night because of pain, because of restlessness, because of whatever, sometimes that is a really good time you don't necessarily want to get immersed in something for an hour and a half but maybe something that's 20 minutes or 15 minutes. It can be It can be just a way to maybe distract yourself from what's happening or to possibly comfort or soothe you depending on the subject matter of the short documentary. And so I would, um, that's just a suggestion I would give to some of you. I think I use films as a coping mechanism in general. And I think when I'm maybe going through difficult times or I'm going through, um, Maybe when I'm struggling a little bit more, I'll turn to film and I'll watch a lot of films almost to distract me, I guess, from my own life because I'm really attracted to films that are are outside of the U.S., outside of the English-speaking world. So I watch a lot of obscure films, like a lot of films that are not streaming on Netflix or Hulu. Um, they tend to be more obscure, maybe more difficult to find, and I like films from different countries, like, I want to explore some films from Thailand soon, I want to explore some films from Tibet soon, um, so I have all kinds of of films, I'm hoping to watch some Ingmar Bergman in, in this coming December, Uh, I'd like to watch Fanny and Alexander, the television version, so... I like to watch films where I'm taken out of my life and I'm taking and I'm taken into other people's lives other parts of the world other experiences that's a really important part of watching film for me is is experiencing other lives right and and that's just an important thing to me but I was also thinking about recently why I watch films why what films give me that maybe books don't or movies don't and it it really hit me when i was watching a particular documentary and the documentary featured i think it featured old um old movies uh not old movies but old home movies that people had taken like at a lake or they had taken of their children or or something like that and i thought there is something about films especially home movies but film in general that preserves a moment that would otherwise be lost and it preserves the human body in motion and the human body alive and living and in that way it it preserves the dead you know often you'll look at old home movies and and say it's of someone you love who's who's died and it feels like they're alive again or you'll watch old classic Hollywood films like, you know, with Marilyn Monroe in them or Joan Crawford or Elizabeth Taylor. Um, and it's like they're still alive. So there is something unique, I think, about cinema to bring the dead to life or to keep the dead alive in some way. They are forever captured alive on those negatives or on those reels of film. And, um, that's what's so powerful about it. You know, when I, I used to have this VHS tape of, of my father who's dead. And, um, and I remember watching it at one time and just, you know, it was so powerful to see him moving, to see him alive, you know, there's something about film and home movies that can bring back that nostalgia that can make you feel like, the past has been preserved. The past has been saved and salvaged, even though it's an illusion. I mean, it is, but it's a beautiful illusion and a comforting illusion. And, um, I think that is why film attracts me is because it it preserves these moments forever in time. And, um, And I recently read a book. I didn't really like it. (laughs) Um, It's called Film, A Very Short Introduction, and it was written by Michael Wood. And I'm very honest on this podcast that I don't have any background in film studies. And I've never studied film academically or taken any courses about film history or the history of cinema. And so I've tried to start maybe reading some things, reading some books here and there. And so I thought film, a very short introduction, would be a good introduction. Um, It's a very strange book. It's It's not very comprehensive or chronological. It's very meandering, and I didn't find it helpful, I hate to say. But there was this quote in it that has stayed with me that Michael Wood writes about film as a kind of trace, that a a film is, it leaves a trace behind. And so here's the quote, and I just wanted to share it because of my general discussion about film. Quote, nothing ever dies on film. Even corpses are mobile. Visibly carried around in their coffins or tracked from more than one angle. Virginia Woolf said long ago that on film, We see life as it is when we have no part in it. Of course we don't exactly see life as it is, but what we see certainly seems to be living. It feels much more vivid than any representation could, and indeed it is not exactly a representation, it is a trace. This is why our having no part in it seems so strange, almost impossible." And so that part it is a trace was very interesting to me that film is not a representation of life it is a trace of life a trace of the living the once living and the you know and the now dead or the eventual dead and um that is something that resonates with me about film and why I think it has taken over so much like For instance, I think of a film like Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc starring Maria Falconetti. And it was made in 1928 and I think a lot about this film and it's a very important film to me. It was one of the first art house films I saw and it was one of the first experiences I had with cinema that was religious or divine or where I realized that film could be art rather than just entertainment. And so when you watch that film almost a hundred years later now, Maria Falconetti's dead. Carl Theodore Dreyer is dead. Everybody that made that film is probably dead. And all the actors in it. And yet there is Maria Falconetti's face. And there she is moving and there she is crying and there she is gesticulating. And there she is, you know, fighting for her life as Joan of Arc and trying to live. And so it's it's so vivid and it just, those images become part of you and they become part of your life for sure. But there is that a- aspect of she will never die. I mean, Maria Falconetti is dead, but in that film, she is not dead. She's alive to us, even though it's an illusion. But I just wanted to talk about that for a minute <clears throat> because... I've just been so obsessed with movies lately, and I I can't stop watching them. And I go through those periods, and I think... And sometimes it's hard to stop watching films. It's like, you have to live. you You can't live in art your whole life or every minute of the day. But I'm sort of someone who... I would like to live in art. Like, I have a hard time being in the world and surviving the world and i'm someone who i'd rather be reading a book or i'd rather be watching a film or i'd rather be engaging with art and it's almost like art is the only way i can bear life the only way i can bear the world um and that's a that's just something that i've known about myself for a long time that there is no place for me in the world there there just isn't and I'm always outside of it and I always struggle to cope with it and to navigate it and so art for me becomes an escape and a comfort so I wanted to talk about these two documentaries first I want to talk about how I watched them and um by the time this episode airs i'm not sure if they'll be available um i watched it through a site called festival scope and festival scope is one of the most amazing things ever and i'm not being paid to say that i'm just saying that as a person who uses this website basically just about every month um they offer a selection of films from various film festivals around the world. Sometimes it's a free event, um, but only so many people can watch each film. And so sometimes the films will get gone pretty quick. Um, and then sometimes the events are like, um, you pay for the films, but it's at a low cost. Like I think they've they've done some in the past where you, you bought five films and you could get them for $2 a piece and often these films are like from festivals and by big name directors and so it's a really amazing way if you like independent cinema if you like art house um, cinema cinema from other countries it's a really great website for finding current films like that so i watched these two films through an event on festival scope where they're showing films from the montreal international documentary festival Um, and that's how i saw these films and um they were free and i was able to see them before they got gone (laughs) and before other people watched them and so i do urge you to look into festival scope festivalscope.com you can sign up you create an account it's free you just have to put in your name and email address, and you'll get um, emails when they have festivals coming up. And as long as you get there quick, you can usually watch a lot of the films that are available. And I have seen some amazing films from Festival Scope, and I've talked about them on the podcast and, and um, done, done some um, some episodes about them, which is what I'm doing today. So the first film I want to talk about is a film called Birth of a Family and it's directed by Tasha Hubbard and it's from 2016 and it's a documentary, both of these films are documentaries. This film is just, it captured my heart when I watched it. It is about um, the backdrop for the context of the story of Birth of a Family is in canada in the 1960s i'm not sure how many people are aware of this i certainly wasn't as someone who lives in the united states there was something called the 60s scoop and what happened was that in the 1960s first nation peoples in canada um, what we would probably call native americans here in the united states or or yeah, Native Americans. Um, These First Nation uh, peoples, um, they would go into families and they would take the children away from the mothers. And and that happened to, according to the documentary, this happened to 20,000 indigenous children they were taken from their families between nineteen fifty five and nineteen eighty five, and often they were either put in foster care or they were adopted by white families. So this is a major thing and it particular it's referred to as the sixty scoop. Um, but it happened for many decades before and after the 1960s it looks like started in 1955 and then went to 1985 so what happened is that there was a woman named mary jane and she was an indigenous woman in canada and she had four children she had rosalie ben esther and betty ann and as part of the 60 scoop all four of her children were taken away from her in the 1960s. They were placed in white families. All four of the children were raised by white families. And um, for 50 years they had never met or been together. Um, I think two of them may have met earlier, I'm not sure. but so these four siblings for 50 years did not know each other. And it took a Betty Ann is really the catalyst for a lot of this. Betty Ann looked and looked and looked for many, many years for her siblings and finally found all four of them. And so this film is about the first time that all four of the siblings have been together. And so they rent this cabin. And it's in this beautiful part of Canada. I can't remember exactly the location. But they rent this really beautiful Canada. It's like uh, the cabin. It looks to be near the mountains or something. And they all meet. And they come together and they talk about their lives. They do things together. They bond. And so the title, Birth of a Family, is really about how these four individuals who have been separated from each other for five decades are finally able to meet each other, get to know each other, and become a family again, to become the family they should have always been, and that the Canadian government prevented them from being. And Mary Jane is no longer alive. Their mother, Mary Jane, has died. Um, she is gone unfortunately and was not able to see her family come together and it's interesting because they don't like to call it a reunion at one point in the film they say it's not a reunion because we were never together, together to begin with you know so it's really a union and I was so touched by this film it's one of the it's the first film I have seen about the subject of the 60 scoop and about indigenous people being taken from their families and i know that there were similar things that happened here in the united states against native americans who were taken and put into schools and and um something similar happened in canada too where they had these residential schools and so they would take children and um indigenous children first nations children and they would put them into the to this school system to try to, you know, um, basically rid them of their native of their Native American culture and not let them practice their spiritual traditions, not let them speak their um, indigenous language. Um, it was really there to inculcate like white Christian values into them, I guess. And, um, and that was something that we had here in the United States with boarding schools. And it was something that, that happened to Aboriginal people in Australia, where we have the whole uh, stolen generation. <clears throat> and a really powerful film about that in Australia is a film called Rabbit Proof Fence. I watched it a few years ago when I was in college, I was in a feminist class, I was in a women's studies class, and we watched Rabbit Proof Fence, and that talks about um, some of those children who were taken away from their families. So as I was watching this film, there's just so much, what I thought about was first of all the pain that mary jane went through to have her children taken away from her i think when it comes to first nation peoples and native americans we i don't know how it is in canada so i'm really speaking about native americans here in the united states but i would think that it's somewhat similar in canada although I think there was a truth and reconciliation commission about some of this in Canada, whereas we we have not had that here in the United States. But what I wanna say is that we have not really, in the US, confronted what we did to Native American people and to the different tribes, and how the founding of this country was done through genocide and murder and how even to this day native american peoples continue to suffer high levels of poverty and they really struggle you know they struggle to live in this country um under racism and under the oppression of native american people and something that comes to mind is standing rock that was recent um that was just last year i think and we saw how Native American peoples were standing up against the federal government, you know, and saying, we do not want this pipeline put into our um, our sacred land or into our communities where it could um, spill. There could be a leak and our drinking water could be tainted. You know, they were really fighting for basic rights, you know, to have clean water um, to have control over their lands. And, um, and you saw what happened with that. There was a great deal of violence and, and, you know, of course the people with the money won, you know, of course the, the oil people win and it's disgusting. You know, it really is. And just recently there was an oil spill from the pipeline. So what they had feared has in some ways come to pass. And, um, but I think Standing Rock was a reminder that the struggle of native peoples is ongoing. That native peoples still exist. That they are here. They are still carrying on the traditions of their ancestors. Carrying on the languages. Um, and still struggling under very oppressive um, circumstances. That the American government has created for them. And um. So. Watching this film was very powerful. Because. You think about Mary Jane having all four of her children taken from her. And there's some very powerful scenes in this film where. Betty Ann, Esther, Ben and Rosalie are actually talking about it. And. Betty Ann brings up at one point that you know the government did eventually apologize to to the First Nations peoples for what was done and and um Esther Esther speaks up and she says but what does that do you know what can what can an apology ever do compared to the pain of what we have been through and what countless other people have been through and um and betty ann at one point also says that they don't need an apology they need for white people to stop thinking that they are better or superior to native americans and first nation peoples and i thought that was a really powerful statement and something that was really in- interesting about the four of them is that they were raised in white homes and so they they were not able to learn the traditions or to learn the language of their, um, tribes, and they feel a great deal of pain over that. At one point in the documentary, they go to a place, um, I guess where they teach some of those traditions, and they talk to, like, an elder man, and, and he shows them, like, how to, how to do a drum, and, and just different things, different traditions for the First Nation peoples, and, um, you can tell that they're they're very moved by it because they think because they didn't get to have that growing up they didn't have any kind of connection to their culture and it reminded me a bit of what sometimes um you know when asian children or or any child from another country is is adopted into a family say in the United States, say that a Chinese child is adopted and brought to the United States, there is often a struggle for that child because they don't feel fully American, but of course they don't feel fully Chinese either. And so there's always, I think, that conflict in in them, I would think, I would imagine. I don't want to speak for them, but who am I? Where do I belong? And of course, you always think about I'm sure the the culture that you've lost and and that is a form of loss that instead of living in China and learning chinese and 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 having and being with your family in China, your extended family, you're in America with these people who, of course have raised you and you love them, but you have a connection to that other country too and I had the sense with these four that they felt that connection to um to their tribes um but they were never able to explore it and they were never able to have their mother hand down those traditions mary jane knew the knew her native language and she knew the different traditions and things like that and she could have taught that to them and they could have carried that on in some way and Betty Ann has a really poignant uh, moment where she talks about how, you know, some people have told her, "Oh, well, your life went well. Look, you've turned out really well." So, so they're they're trying to insinuate that because she's okay, because she had a good life with her white family, that that somehow makes it okay that she was ripped from her mother, and put into another family, and um and she categorically rejects that you know that that no it's not okay what happened just because i've turned out okay and all of them have turned out really well rosalie has a has a moment where she's talking about how she had a wonderful family that raised her and she was very happy and that It could have gone such a different way. But it didn't for her. And that she was very lucky in that regard. And all of them seem to have had positive experiences. With the white families that adopted them. But that's not the point. The point is that a crime was committed. And these children were taken from their mother. And it was wrong. And it was done by the government. And it was based on racist um, policies and and it was based on bigotry, you know. And um that is the point of it. And for people to try to justify it or to excuse it is very disturbing. You know, no matter how these children turned out, no matter what kind of experiences they had growing up, that does not make it okay for you to steal them from their families and put them somewhere else. It it's just not right. And, um, and of course for so many people, it doesn't go well. And here in the United States, I know that there's been horror stories about Native Americans who were put in boarding schools and all kinds of abuse and, um, trauma that they suffered because of that. And, um, so this film brought so much of that to life about the pain because we think of these things in terms of politics or whatever. And, and this personalizes I mean, you can hear about how First Nation peoples are treated. You can hear statistics. You can hear about the 60s scoop and about children taken from their parents. But it's a very different thing when you see the damage that it has done. When you see a family who has to try and grapple with what was taken from them. And it broke my heart. Why? I mean this is a beautiful documentary. But it was heartbreaking too at times. Because I thought about these four people. And I thought about. How they have to live with that pain and hurt. Because there is no going back. There is no changing it. They don't get to go back and be with their mother. They don't get to go back and be siblings. And at one time Ben talks about this. And he chokes up, he really cries about it. He talks about how you know all the things that they missed, you know, being siblings with each other and you know going to school together and birthdays and and Christmases and all the things that they lost. and so now they're trying to build a relationship with each other, and they're trying to become the family that they were prevented from being. And one way that they do that is by having a birthday party, and they put um and it's it's really a birthday party to celebrate all the birthdays that they missed out on together, so it's like two hundred and twelve birthdays, and so they put two hundred and twelve you know two one two on the cake and they blow out candles and so it's sort of almost like um like this ritual it's sort of like a cleansing or like a new beginning, you know and um I thought that was a poignant moment. They have missed 212 birthdays with each other. And so this film really brings to life the pain and the trauma that First Nation peoples went through. Having their children taken away. Um, And you see the impact of that on one family. These four children taken away from their mother. But I don't want to say that this is a really sad film. It's also a really beautiful film to see these four people come together and they're so loving and they're so sweet and funny they laugh a lot together they go and and do all kinds of things together they go um they go like on this um I don't know if it's a glacier it's like a iced over lake or something like that but they kind of go and do sort of touristy things um in Canada I I i don't watch a lot of canadian cinema and i don't know a lot about canada but watching this film and the places they went like were so beautiful i didn't realize i guess sort of the natural um wonders of canada um really really beautiful they're they're in the mountains and places like that and they're just they're just doing everyday things together trying to make up for lost time right and they just talk or they, you know, they they go and just do different activities together, just trying to get to know each other. And um, it's just really beautiful to watch them create a family together. And I, I really loved the whole idea that they went and rented this cabin and really sort of left their everyday lives and came together for a short period of time. I don't know if it was a week or two. I'm not sure how long um, their trip or their vacation lasted. But I really loved this idea that they really dedicated time um, to just be together. You know? And I-, I loved that idea. You know, that after 50 years, I think you kind of deserve that. Like, go rent you a cabin and get to know each other and do things together. And I love that they took the time to do that because you could, I mean, I guess other people would maybe send cards or, or do phone calls or something like that, but they really spent time together, real quality time. They all live in different parts of, of, um, of Canada. And I think one of them lives in California. She was taken to California when she was really young. That was Esther and um so they all have to fly in um so so they don't live really close to each other unfortunately um but it really makes you think about what family is and watching this documentary made me think about my own family issues unfortunately i am estranged from most of my family from my father's side and my mother's side and um It makes me really sad for the most part. It's just watching this film and seeing the four of them together, it really reminded me that, you know, there are people who have caring families and loving families. And I just, I didn't get that. So I I got really, I got estranged from my father's family after he died because they were quite cruel and quite toxic, I thought and i had to cut ties with them because it was just too painful it was too painful to be around them and um they were not good people they were not pleasant people and then we've had issues with my mom's side of the family as well and so were completely estranged and I recently moved. I grew up in North Carolina for most of my life, 26 years and I'm 28 years old and um, due to financial reasons we had to leave and um, we moved to another state and um, it's it's been difficult. It's been difficult. It wasn't really a choice. <laughs> um, it was just something that had to be done and, and we had to leave and move to another state due to like a job opportunity and and things like that. And so it's, and I, I don't know how to talk about it because it's so painful, but none of them care. That's what I'm trying to say is that Nobody sends cards and nobody calls and nobody cares that we're not there anymore. So I don't consider those people family. You know how how can they be family when they don't really care about you and they don't care if you're alive and they don't care what happens to you or what's going on in your life. I can't I don't have a family. Like that's hard to say but it's the truth of my life. I don't have somebody to call. I don't have a support system. I don't have anybody except my mom. I mean, that's what I have. (laughs) and um, That's that's hard to deal with. It's hard to cope with it. Um, and, And you just think, God, what did I do? What did I do to make people not love me and to make people not care about me? And it's hard to not internalize it. It's hard not to believe that you are worthless and unlovable and that you don't matter um and it's been a struggle my whole life i never felt close to my family i never felt loved by them both my mom and my dad's side i never felt a sense of love or care or concern you know and i think i've always craved those things and they've always been missing from my life I, l- I felt loved by my parents, my mom, and my dad, but beyond that, I didn't feel loved, and I think I'm sort of suffering from it. I really am like I've been alone so long and lonely for so long that I don't even I don't even know what the alternative is. If someone showed me love or kindness, I'm not even sure I'd know how to handle it i don't know how to cultivate any kind of intimacy or connection with people because it has been so absent from my life i almost feel numb in some ways you know and i feel very hurt um by all of that i feel very hurt by that estrangement but i don't think you can force it i don't think you can have a relationship with people that don't want to have a relationship with you i have tried to reach out to certain members of my family and they didn't care and they did not reciprocate it and so i have to move on you know and i have to live my life but that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt and so watching this film was really powerful to look at for people who really had not known each other, you know, for five decades. And even though they are connected by blood and connected by their mother, um, that doesn't mean necessarily that they would have come together and had a lot in common, but they do happen to get along in the documentary. And I tell you when this documentary ended, it's one of those films where you like, you wish you could get an update. Like, I would love to know what their relationship is like now. It's one of those films where you wish you could talk to the director. You wish you could, like, you know, reach out to her and say, well, what is Esther up to? And what's Betty Ann doing? And how's Ben and Rosalie? It's that kind of documentary where you just, you fall in love with them. And, and, um, I really fell in love with those, with these four people and, and these siblings. And I, was so touched by their story and i was touched by their willingness to open up to each other and the risk that they took in being vulnerable and 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 trying to get to know each other and to build a new family and i thought that was just something really beautiful and i think that it can be an example to us of how you can create a family um, Even if it's been 50 years, right, you can still have that connection with each other. But Rosalie makes a great point, a great argument at one point that they all have to work at it. Because she was already thinking about the next year and how she wanted all of them to come to her house. And she made a really good point that she said, I want us to keep this up. I want us to keep getting together and talking to each other and staying in touch. And working at this. And when we think about family, I don't know if we think about work. That it takes, I I guess some of us think it should be natural or it should just happen. And that's an interesting idea that actually being a family can take work. And that you have to regularly work at it. You have to actually put in some kind of effort. You know? And that love, maybe love means effort. (laughs) That if you love someone, you're willing to sacrifice some of your time, or you're willing to put in some work to try and stay in touch with them, to try and stay connected to them, and that it doesn't always come easily. And so I thought that was a really interesting idea too, that they need to keep working at it constantly, and they need to stay connected, um, and I hope that they do. And I didn't want this documentary to end. And when it did, I just kept thinking, I wonder what they're doing now. And I wonder what's going on in their lives. Like, I would love an update or a second documentary or something like that. And I think that would be really interesting. But this documentary really shows us the the pain inflicted and the trauma inflicted on multiple generations of First Nation peoples. Um and really the what they've had to endure but we also see in these four individuals their ability to love each other to um open their hearts to one another and um it's it's just a beautiful documentary and I'm really glad that I watched it so the second documentary I want to talk about is also about family in many ways and it is called Manic and it's by Kalina Bertin and it's about, it's, it's a really powerful documentary and so I might struggle a, li- a little bit to talk about it because it's very raw and it's very personal because Ka- Kalina, I'm just going to take a sip of water. what Kalina does is that she really opens her family up to us and she shows her family in all their complexity and all their rawness too and she's investigating her father and she's also weaving in that investigation with the contemporary struggles of her two siblings so her father was a very interesting person, a very disturbing person in some ways. He was basically sort of a guru. He sort of was a cult leader a little bit. He had sort of a little bit of a cult that he was in um, or that he led for a while. Um, He was violent at times. He had various wives He had um, over a dozen children that he fathered with different women. Um, He is in many ways a mystery and an enigma to Kalina and her um, sister, Felicia, and her brother, Sean. um, Or Francois Sean, but I'll call him Sean. And so she interviews various people that knew her father. Um... And her father actually went by multiple names sometimes he went by sean sometimes george because he was he often moved he lived in hawaii then he was in the caribbean then he went to thailand so he was in many ways a con man as well um and he but he remains an enigma and he remains an, a mystery to everyone really that knew him and he is dead He's not alive, and so she's really looking at his death as well, but she's trying to make sense of who he was, and and he did suffer from mental illness, and mental illness is really the crux of this documentary, because the mental illness that he had, he had uh, manic depression for the most part, and really it's about how mental illness can be an intergenerational thing. And so he had mental illness and Kalina's brother and sister have profound mental illness. They have manic depression as well, or bipolar disorder. So this documentary really shows mental illness and i don't think we often see that in cinema and we don't often see it in documentaries and what i mean by that is that we don't see depression we don't see mania like exposed in that way in such a personal and raw way and this documentary shows that we see kalina's sister felicia in a manic episode where she's talking about angels and she's talking about um god sending her messages and and things like that. We see her brother in a state of mania himself and in a state of psychosis um at one point he starts to throw knives and she has to run out of the room and he is admitted to a psychiatric hospital and um and this documentary takes place in canada as well I I do believe that her and her siblings live in Canada so I just want to say that as well um that's the setting you know that's where they live and um possibly in the Montreal area because they speak French as well as or, or Quebec could be Quebec or Montreal um I don't know for certain, but possibly a French speaking part of Canada because they do speak French and their mother speaks French. So we see Sean and Felicia struggling with mental illness and Felicia has a daughter and there's some pretty intense moments. Um. I was really struck by this moment when Felicia's laying in bed and she's in her manic episode and she's talking about angels and things like that. And her daughter, her daughter's young, her daughter's probably eight, I guess. And she says something like, I really wish you weren't my mom or something like that. Or why are you, why do I have to have you as a mother? It's like something to that effect. And I was like, oh, I was like, wow, that's intense. And it's that's a hard thing to hear i think and um and then at one point felicia talks about having to go on welfare um and how it's difficult for her to you know try to support her daughter and and how she feels bad about that and she feels really ashamed and she cries and i thought this documentary showed manic depression, bipolar disorder in a really honest, open way. And I think some people could make the charge, oh, it's exploitative. But because Kalina is looking at her own family and her own siblings, I think, yes, if it was somebody outside of the family, it could be exploitative. But because it is her siblings, I don't think it is. I think it's more of her trying to show people what they struggle with and what the reality is for them. And I think at one point, Sean says something like that. He says he actually supports the documentary because he thinks that something good will come out of what he struggles with and which is his mental illness and that maybe I would think he thinks that maybe it will show people what it's really like to live with mental illness maybe that could foster some empathy or some compassion or maybe make people a little less judgmental you know of people with mental illness so i was really struck by the rawness of the documentary of how kalina showed showed her siblings in really intense moments Moments when they're crying, moments when they're in mania, moments when they're, um, they're really struggling, and both of them, um, are artistic. They like to paint, and um, that's a really important thing for them as well as their art. And um, I was just struck by, um, I don't know. I've never seen a documentary that showed people who were manic. showed people in really intense states of mental distress and it was jarring at times it was a bit shocking but it was it was also i think a window to what it's like to live with bipolar disorder and um, it made me think about how difficult it must be for people to just navigate life and navigate the world you know, I thought about how do they hold down a job? How do they, how do they do these things when when they have a mental illness that is beyond their control? And I myself struggle with mental illness, not to the extreme. You know, I've never been in a psychiatric hospital and I don't have any kind, I don't have really intense, you know, mental disorder. I have depression and anxiety. That's what I deal with on a regular basis, and um, so I had sympathy as well as empathy for Felicia and Sean because, even though I have not experienced mania or or any or psychosis, or anything like that, I do understand some of what it's like to, just struggle, struggle to be in the world, struggle to survive, struggle to, um conform yourself to this world that you don't fit in and that doesn't have a lot of compassion for whatever that you're going through and I have struggled with depression and anxiety my entire life and I knew from a very early age that there was something I don't want to say wrong with me because then that's sort of you know saying that people with mental illness have, are wrong or something or abnormal, but. I knew that there was something different about me that at a very early age I would I would cry a lot and for no reason you know there was no reason for me to be crying I had an intense social anxiety you know and had trouble talking to people or interacting with people Um, and I still have that and I still suffer from that and if anything my anxiety has really it's gotten more intense i i have i have a lot of struggles i mean i'm ashamed of it i'm ashamed of of things and so i don't talk about them in depth on the podcast because i don't want people to know i don't want people to know how bad it is and how ashamed i feel and how pathetic i feel um but I have, I do, I struggle with, like, agoraphobia, and I'm very reclusive, and I just, I can't do basic things that, like, other people can do, and, um, I can't live the way that I would like to live because of mental illness, and, you know, when you're, poor and you don't have a lot of money and you don't have health insurance here in the United States, there's not a whole lot you can do. I mean, I don't get to go see a therapist. I don't get to look into medications that could maybe help me live a more normal life. So I just try to cope the best way that I know how to cope because I don't have help. I don't have any way to, to deal with it, um, other than myself, and just trying to survive, and just trying to do the best that I can, but I feel very vulnerable because of it, and I feel very scared, you know, and um, I'm just going to take another sip of drink. I mean I recently sort of had this revelation that there I really I don't have bouts of depression I am always depressed I am always in a state of depression if anything I have bouts of non-depression like those are the short I have these little short intervals where I may not feel depression The anxiety is pretty much always with me I wouldn't say that I ever feel completely free of it, um, but the depression is pretty much constant. It's pretty much uh, like what I always feel, and um, I just often wonder, like, what is it like to not be depressed? What is it like to not have anxiety? Like, I see other people living. I see other people doing things that I can't do. People living lives that I can't live and it's just I wonder why did they get to be that way and then I'm like this you know and I try to forgive myself and I try not to be hard on myself because I know that I've been through a lot in my life I've been through a lot of loss and grief and I haven't had an easy life, and I don't have access to the same resources as other people. And so I try to forgive myself, and I try to say to myself, you know, you have been through certain experiences that have profoundly traumatized and damaged you, and broken you, and you're doing the best that you can, and that's all you can do. and i just try to be kind to myself but the shame is just overwhelming and i got to thinking you know watching this documentary you know sean and felicia have manic depression because their father had manic depression that was something they most likely inherited from him and I thought how tragic that was in, in many ways that they struggle a great deal with something that was born into them, that they were born with, you know what I mean? That they really do not have any control over and cannot do much about besides trying to take medication, I guess, and, and do different things. Um, mm-hmm. But I got to thinking about having children and I got to thinking about... I don't think I would have children if I could or if I wanted to. I don't know if I can have children or not. It's not something I've really thought about or tried to do or anything. Um, And I'm not saying this to say that mentally ill people should not have children. So please don't misconstrue it that way. I'm talking about personally in my life. Would I want to have a child knowing that it could possibly be like me? I wouldn't want it to be like me (laughs) and it hurt me to think about it but I thought would I have a child knowing that it could turn out like me that it could have something like this that it could have the depression it could have the anxiety or it could you know possibly even be worse you know And I just thought about how I would not want to inflict that on a child. And I would not want to inflict that on someone else. And how in the state that I'm in, I couldn't even raise a child or take care of a child. I can barely take care of myself, you know. But that was like a big realization for me. Like, I, I don't think I would have a child because life is filled with so much suffering I don't think I'd want to bring a child into that personally, and that's just me, you know I'm not saying other mentally ill people should not have children, not saying that, and never would, but for me personally, in my own life, I just don't think I'd want to bring a child into the world. I just wouldn't want it I wouldn't want him or her. Uh, or them to be like me. In any way, shape, or form. Um, and I guess that's my shame speaking. And I guess that's my self-hatred speaking. Um, but that's just the truth. And that's how I feel about it. And it makes me really sad. <laughs> but this documentary. I really appreciated how open and honest it was about mental illness and how it didn't try to hide the reality of it you know we see Felicia in her mania we see Sean in his psychosis but we also see them in times of creativity and tenderness and we are reminded that people are so many things all at once you know like Walt Whitman said you know i contain multitudes and that is one of the truest statements i think of the human condition that we are all things at once you know we're depressed sometimes we, we you can be everything at once you can be depressed but you can also love life you know i mean you can have different emotions all at once and um but this this film takes a no holds barred approach to showing. I mean, Kalina goes deep into her family. I mean, she is showing her father in a really unflattering light. You know, I think a lot of people's um, instinct would be to protect their father. You know, the, you wouldn't want people to know that he was abusive, that he was a con man, that he was a cult leader. I mean, this is a man with many layers and many like, um, secrets, and it's quite shocking, you know, as you're watching this film and learning about this man, and then you're also seeing what his children struggle with, you know, how they struggle with his life and who he was, and are trying to make sense of him, and then they're also trying to cope with their own mental illness and their own mental issues, and, um... It's just, it's powerful. It's really powerful to watch. And I, I just appreciated the, the rawness and the honesty and the authenticity and the openness to show her family that way, you know. And she's not doing it to exploit them. She's doing it to show that this is what so many people struggle with. You know Felicia and Sean are not alone. you know millions of people have mental illness, millions of people deal with with manic depression and bipolar disorder and and other mental illnesses you know, and this is part of their reality and and I really wish the stigma attached to mental illness would uh, would go away. <laughs> I, I, I hate it. I just, we, we talk about it, but I still think that there's a big stigma attached to it. And I think it breeds shame. And I, I feel it myself. I feel so much shame about not being able to cope with life and not being able to be normal in quotation marks, normal, whatever that means. And being different and and struggling and I just feel so much shame about it and and I think if you take away the stigma and the shame then there can be more resources and there can be more help because the more we stigmatize it the more we the more we don't want to talk about it or we think that it's a moral failing or it's just something that's wrong with people the more you can justify not helping people I mean, we have a huge problem, especially here in the United States, with access to mental health treatment. You know, it is a huge, huge problem. A lot of people can't go to therapists. A lot of people cannot get help with their mental illness, with their anxiety and their depression and and their bipolar disorder. A lot of people are suffering in silence, and they just don't have access to the help or the resources that they need. Or shame prevents them from if they do have the access, shame can often prevent them from trying to access those resources um, it's It's a huge issue, a huge issue that we don't talk about enough, and that we don't show enough in films. You know the way mental illness gets shown on screen tends to be really just over the top or not really truthful and authentic and so I think maybe a documentary like this can be much more helpful in showing individuals struggling in their everyday lives and to try to to open a window and give you a glimpse of what it's like for people and uh, what they have to deal with you know and what bipolar disorder is really like for an everyday person and um And how hard it can be and painful. And so this is like Birth of a Family. Manic is about family. And it's about a family trying to navigate mental illness. And the ghosts of the past. I mean I think Kalina at one point says that she's always felt very haunted. Because of her father and her father's death. And her father's life. And I think Felicia might say something. I might have said something too at one point about ghosts, or so they all, to some extent, feel very haunted in their lives and very, very overwhelmed by the past. I think, and by, by the ghosts, you know, and that are sort of always present in their lives, and um, so it's just this really amazing open, honest, raw documentary about family and mental illness and being haunted by the past and, and haunted by a person, haunted by their father and who he was and, and trying to come to terms with that. So there's so much going on in in that documentary and, but I really wanted to talk about it in order to talk about mental illness and sort of my own personal struggles and, um, and how hard it is, you know. It really is. I wish I could be more open about it. I wish I could I could tell you more, but it's just too painful, you know, and I'm too ashamed. And um I don't want people to think less of me. So it's hard, you know. It's hard to be in this world and to be someone who, who is different, you know, who's sensitive and who feels things in a deep way. And I mean, I don't have mania, but, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, maybe the when I get manic over cinema you know maybe that's a form of mania or something I don't know but um yeah depression and anxiety is just it'll be a lifelong struggle for me it's been with me since I was a child and you know I, I often get in a place where I just wish it would go away I wish I could be okay I wish I could you know I wish I could overcome it right but it's not within my control And, um, you know, you don't choose depression or something. You know, you don't choose to be anxious. Um, It's beyond your control. And um, I just wish there was more sympathy for that and less shame and less judgment. And um, I don't know. I don't know when we'll get to that point. I really don't. So these two documentaries, I really wanted to talk about them, and I think they had some connections in the way that they looked at family in a very open way, but obviously they're both about very different experiences. You know, with Birth of a Family, we have four people coming together after 50 years of being separated due to the Canadian government's policies against First Nation peoples, and um dealing with the trauma of that and also working very hard to connect with each other and to build a new family um though that does not make what happened okay and you can tell that all four of them are struggling to cope with what was lost what they will never be able to have but at least they have each other now and so that is what they're trying to focus on but the the film doesn't ignore the pain of the past and it does um confront it and talk about it and it talks about you know what the Canadian government did to indigenous people in Canada and that is a story that absolutely needs to be told and it needs to be told again and again and again we need more stories about that not just in Canada but here in the United States too, we need more films telling the stories of Native American and indigenous people. And not just what they went through in the past, but what they continue to be put through in, the, in contemporary times. And um, the ways in which their rights are taken away, the ways in which they are oppressed and, and harmed by the policies of, of the American government. So we need justice. That's what we need. We need to acknowledge the past. And the genocide that we did. And we need to. Change. We need to abolish this racism. And um. That is what we need. And then of course manic. Is a very specific story. I think about. Struggling with a father's legacy and grappling with who their father was and then grappling with their own mental illness and a a struggle that they have to go through every single day and that they really never get a break from and so like birth of a family after manic I was left wondering how Felicia and Sean are doing and and you know, at one point Sean says, you know, when he went to the psychiatric hospital, they had like six binders on him. You know, he is someone who has been in and out of mental hospitals for much of his life. And so again, it's, it's one of those documentaries where you really care about the people and you care about the subjects. And even after the documentary ends, you wonder how they are and you wonder what's happening in their life. And, um, of course we don't know and um but i'm sure it's very hard you know very very hard for them still and that the struggle continues the thing about mental illness is that it is a lifelong thing it is something that you are always dealing with and struggling with and trying to navigate in your everyday life and um it can be exhausting in that way both for yourself and for the people in your life um, because you never really get a break from it and that can be very difficult so I did want to talk about these two films these two documentaries um... and I wanted to use them as a springboard or a platform to talk about some other personal issues in my own life including my estrangement from my family and my own personal struggle with mental illness. I do hope that maybe in the future you could see these films. Um, I know it may not be easy or they may not be streaming eventually but I'm really grateful that Festival Scope made them available and that I was able to watch them. I mean often these films that people don't talk much about or they don't get a lot of attention Often they can be some of the most powerful. And I encourage you in your film watching. um, Wherever you stream or whatever you do. To maybe, you know, if if you are going through the catalog on whatever website or websites that you use for watching films. I would encourage you to maybe look at some of the films that don't have a rating. You know, um or that you don't you haven't read a review of in a mainstream publication or a film that hasn't gotten a lot of mainstream attention but sometimes those films that like nobody talks about or very few people know about sometimes they can be the most rewarding and the most interesting and the most um human you know and you can really feel a deep connection to those films so that's just another suggestion I would give to you is to maybe sometimes seek out the films that nobody else is watching. Um, it's fine to watch mainstream and commercial films. I do it too. You know, I enjoy that stuff all the time. But sometimes I, I like these little documentaries that nobody talks about and just come on you just come across them and you connect to the people in the film and you maybe come to some own revelations and realizations about your own life and, and things that you've been through and so they can be really enriching and rewarding in that way but um i've talked enough on this saturday night when i had um nothing else to do and just thought that i would talk a bit about some films and I do find this podcast to be a therapeutic thing, and I do enjoy talking about these films and sharing them with you. And um, I hope that my discussion of the films, even though I know that you have not seen these films and that you may not see them in the future, I do hope that the films are not always the entire point of the podcast. It's where the films take me. It's what the films bring to the surface in my own personal life and so i like to think that even if you have not seen these films i talk about because some of them are quite obscure and they may not be accessible to you i hope that you find something in the discussion itself because i often go beyond the film i use the film to go to other places and i hope that you find something interesting or worthwhile in those places that i travel to and that i explore and discover through the films that's what i'm trying to do you know even if you haven't seen the film you can get something from the discussion and something from the larger issues and themes that i am connecting to and that i'm trying to explore and talk about and so that's always my goal with every episode is to take you somewhere is to give you something to think about um, or give you something that maybe you connect to. Maybe you have shame that you're dealing with. Maybe you also have depression and anxiety that you're dealing with. And maybe maybe it helps in some way to know that I have it too and that I'm, you know, doing the best that I can and trying to make it through each day. Um, I hope I hope the podcast can be a can be a way of connecting and a way of making contact or making some kind of impact, you know, on people who listen to it. I don't know if I accomplish that with every episode, but it is something I try to do. So I'll stop here. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.